Hey, true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting and a fully integrated WordPress website. So, if you already have a podcast, or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, You've got no excuses. And now, on to today's show. Dreamers, every once in a while, a crime story comes along that kind of has you scratching your head. A story that makes you wonder what in the world that person was thinking when he or she committed such a crime. I've always been really fascinated with motives. A lot of the time, I think it's one of those things that's at the core of why I find myself so interested in true crime. Like many of us, I want to know why. And there are the usual reasons. Love, money, revenge, jealousy. Those seem to be the top four. I sometimes find myself thinking, yeah, okay, I get it. This person just couldn't take it anymore and they resorted to committing this atrocious crime. It's different than serial killers. They are often deeply disturbed and they commit crimes for reasons that defy reasoning. We're not going to understand because nothing about what a serial killer does makes any sense to us out here trying to peer into their world. I guess that might be why I don't really find myself needing to talk that often about serial killers. They are a puzzle that we just aren't meant to solve because we aren't like them. They don't think like us, and we don't think like them. They do what they do to fill some sort of void or compulsion or to feed an addiction that nothing else satiates. How can we understand that? Trying to solve the conundrum of the serial killer mind to me feels like an impossible task. They don't kill for those typical reasons that I just listed. Love, money, revenge, or jealousy. So when I talk about crimes that have us wondering why, I'm talking about the ones that seem to have consequences that far outweigh any reasoning. 
the person who commits the crime, where his or her life would have been perfectly amazing if they had just left well enough alone. Do you see what I'm getting at? A person does this terrible crime where if they had just allowed things to play out in its own way, if they had just left things alone, in the end, they would have come out on top. They would have been okay, better than okay. Their lives had been blessed and they would have continued on that path if not for the horrendous crime that they chose to commit. You probably know that I'm getting to something more specific. Well, I am. The kinds of stories that immediately come to my mind in particular are football players. Not soccer, but American football players. And no, not OJ Simpson. He's actually technically not guilty of the crimes that he's thought to have committed. But if you think he's guilty of double murder, like I am, then you would categorize his alleged murders as being motivated by jealousy or revenge, perhaps. One of those crimes of passion, something like that. And in a weird way, we make sense of that, right? We are saddened by the loss of the lives of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, but we don't often say that their deaths were senseless. Maybe Ron's because he was unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing a favor for Nicole by returning some sunglasses that were inadvertently left earlier in the evening by Nicole's mom. You might call his death senseless in that way, that OJ really had no personal beef with Ron his problems with Nicole. He had a history, a documented history of violence towards her. He was angry, possessive, and jealous. For his rage to culminate in the very violent stabbing and near decapitation of Nicole, in a way, made sense. He was enraged. He was mad. He spotted her with Ron and flew off the handle and reacted in this manner. So it wasn't senseless per se. It made sense to him anyway, that he felt compelled to put an end to what was causing his anger and his rage. Nicole. And Ron? He was sadly collateral damage. There are a couple of cases big ones that you've likely heard of. Ones that leave you with the feeling that I've described. Wondering why. Why, with everything seemingly great going on in the lives of these individuals, would they choose to throw it all away in a moment of thoughtlessness and violence? When if they had just walked away, their lives would have continued on and great things were destined to come their way because they had this incredible gift of talent that was going to carry them through life. One that comes to my mind is Ray Carruth. If you've heard of him, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, let me explain. So Ray Carruth was born and raised right here in California, in our capital, 
Sacramento. He went to Valley High School where he was a standout football player. He earned a scholarship to the University of Colorado at Boulder, where he played four seasons as a wide receiver, and he was named First Team All-America in 1996. He was chosen in the first round of the 1997 NFL Draft, taken 27th overall by the Carolina Panthers. He penned a four-year, $3.7 million deal with Carolina, a deal that included a $1.3 million signing bonus. It was during his second year at Colorado University that his girlfriend back in Sacramento, Michelle Wright, gave birth to their child, a boy named Raylando. Carruth, for his part, was largely disinterested in being an active participant in his son's life and basically dismissed the boy. So Michelle, in turn, sued Carruth for child support. He was ordered to pay $5,550 a month for a child who by that time was four years old and had yet to even received a birthday gift from his father. After meeting with Michelle, she agreed to take a little bit more than half of what he was ordered to pay, $2,700 a month, if he agreed to spend more time with their son to work at being a better father. Even then, Carruth still failed to live up to his obligations. And when Michelle contacted him by phone to discuss it further, he had these words for her. Don't be surprised if you get into a fatal car accident. Needless to say, Carruth never stepped up. Meanwhile, Carruth had a pretty good rookie season with the Panthers. Starting in 14 games, he caught 44 passes for 545 yards for a total of four touchdown passes. He was named to the all-rookie team at the position of wide receiver. Carruth's career, however, was sidelined during the season opener in 1998 when he broke his right foot, which was a season-ending injury. He finished the 98 season with four catches for 59 yards, all of that happening on that opening day game. He was back on the field for the 1999 season, going the first six games with 14 catches and a total of 200 yards. But his career was suddenly sidelined again. But this time, it wouldn't be an injury. At least, not an injury that he would be suffering. In North Carolina, Carruth began casually dating real estate agent Sharika Adams, who would become pregnant by Carruth in early 1999. On November 16th of that year, eight months pregnant with their son, Sharika was in her vehicle in Charlotte, North Carolina, near Carruth's home, when suddenly his vehicle stopped in front of hers, causing her to stop. A second vehicle pulled alongside her, driven by Van Brett Watkins Sr., the manager of a local nightclub and associate of Carruth's. From the passenger side, Watkins pointed a gun at Sharika and shot at her five times, four of them striking her. One of those bullets 
doing immeasurable damage to her body. Sharika was able to stay conscious long enough to call 911 and implicate Karuth in the shooting. She was able to tell them exactly what happened. The fatal bullet entered Sharika's body through her abdomen. It crossed through her chest and came to rest near her armpit. It pierced her stomach, her large and small intestines, as well as her liver, lung, and diaphragm. It severed her pancreas in half. It severed her splenic artery, causing blood to pour out into her body. But as much as this bullet ravaged Sharika's insides, it missed her baby. But he did begin drowning in her blood. Seventy minutes after Sharika was shot, Chancellor Lee Adams was delivered by emergency C-section. He was blue when he was born, but he was alive. But the damage to his brain was done. Dreamers, Ray Carruth had the audacity to show up at the hospital with another girlfriend. He did not ask about Sharika. He repeatedly asked about the baby, who was the spitting image of Ray Carruth. As the investigation went, Carruth, along with three other accomplices, were arrested on charges of attempted murder with the intent to kill an unborn child. Carruth was released on $3 million bail on the condition that if either Chancellor or Sharika died, he would turn himself in immediately. The Carolina Panthers organization suspended Carruth indefinitely with pay at first. But then on December 2, 1999, they placed him on a leave of absence without pay. And all the while, Chancellor was getting better and better. But Sharika, she was not faring so well. Slowly, her internal organs were beginning to fail. And she would pass away on December 14, 1999. And with her death, Ray Carruth jumped bail, but not for very long. He was arrested the following day in West Tennessee, hiding in the trunk of a car near a motel in Parker's Crossroads. Along with him in the trunk, he had $3,900 in cash, some clothing, some candy, his cell phone, and some bottles that he urinated in. He was waived by the Carolina Panthers the next day, citing the morals clause in his contract with the team. Ray Carruth would go to trial, claiming the incident was a drug deal gone bad. But the prosecution contended that this was a clear case of murder for hire because Sharika refused to terminate that pregnancy. Carruth was found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder, shooting into an occupied vehicle, and using an instrument to destroy an unborn child, and he was subsequently sentenced to 18 to 24 years in prison.
The driver of the vehicle used in the murder, Michael Kennedy, pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 11 years. And the shooter, he also pleaded guilty and he was sentenced to 40 years. Ray Carruth has been granted parole, offering an apology for what he did to Sharika and their son. Chancellor, having been deprived of oxygen for 70 minutes, was born with permanent brain damage and cerebral palsy. He is being cared for by his grandmother, Sharika's mom, who became a single mother all over again at the age of 42. Chancellor's dad is getting out of jail this October 18th, and he promised that he would not seek custody of Chancellor. I wonder if Carruth has spent the better part of the last 18 and a half years thinking about all of the what-ifs. What if he just left things alone? What if he just stepped up as a dad? What if he did the right thing? What if, at the very least, he had just paid his child support? And what if he had just played football? What a waste. And I know you're probably very familiar with another sad and sordid story of yet another young and troubled NFL star, Aaron Hernandez. He's another one of those that just has me shaking my head at the waste of a promising career. I do want to say this before I go on. I do understand that there are underlying issues here with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but I don't want to get too far off track debating how much or how little the condition may or may not have affected these football players. I want to take this time to look at the crime for what it is because the fact remains that these guys are the exception. The majority of NFL players throughout the course of their lives and their careers don't murder people. So it leads me to believe that it is possible to play football and not be inclined to kill someone. So Aaron Hernandez... You guys may have heard of him, but if you haven't, I'll give you a brief synopsis of his story as well, because ultimately, I do have a tale that I'm meaning to get to, one that I'm pretty sure most of you have never heard of. To put what ultimately ended up happening to the life and times of Aaron Hernandez into perspective, it would behoove you to understand what was going on in his life at the time he became fodder for two crime podcasts. By all accounts, and by all accounts I mean asking my husband's opinion because he's certainly not a fan of the New England Patriots, but even he would say that Hernandez was indeed a dominant force on the field in his position as tight end. He was drafted in the 2010 NFL Draft in the fourth round, 113th overall. He began the 2010 season as the youngest player on any active roster in the entire league. Over the course of the next three seasons, Hernandez racked up 175 receptions, 
1,956 receiving yards, and 18 touchdowns. On August 27, 2012, the New England Patriots signed Aaron Hernandez to a five-year, $40 million extension with a $12.5 million signing bonus, the largest bonus ever given to a tight end and the second largest contract extension ever for a tight end, second only to teammate Rob Gronkowski's $53 million contract. In November of 2012, Hernandez and his fiancée, Cheyenne Jenkins, welcomed a baby girl. Also in November, Hernandez purchased a 7,100-square-foot, four-story home in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, for $1.3 million. So this is what Aaron Hernandez had going for him going into 2013. The final time Hernandez would ever play a down of football in the NFL would be on January 20th, 2013, in the AFC Championship game against the Baltimore Ravens. Hernandez had had some run-ins with the law before he was even in college. On April 28, 2007, the then 17-year-old had two drinks at a restaurant in Gainesville, Florida, when he refused to pay the bill. He was escorted out by an employee of the restaurant, but when that employee turned to walk away, Hernandez punched him in the side of the head, causing his eardrum to rupture. The police department wanted to charge Hernandez, but he managed to have the matter settled out of court with a deferred prosecution agreement, which is an alternative to an adjudication where the prosecutor agrees to grant amnesty in exchange for the defendant agreeing to fulfill certain requirements. Hernandez became a suspect in a September 30, 2007 shooting where five shots were fired into a car with three passengers as they waited at a stoplight, also in Gainesville, Florida, after having left a nightclub. The driver was shot in the arm. The front passenger was struck in the back of the head, but both survived, and the backseat passenger was not injured. That passenger was able to tell police that the shooter was either Hawaiian or Hispanic with a very large build, somewhere around 230 pounds or 100 kilograms with lots of tattoos. When questioned by police, Hernandez invoked his rights to an attorney and his right to remain silent. At the time, no charges were filed. However, the incident would be revisited by Massachusetts investigators some five years later to see if there was ever any connection to Hernandez that could be made. Fast forward to July 16, 2012. Daniel Abreu and Safiro Furtado, immigrants from the Canary Islands who were living in Dorchester, Massachusetts, were both killed by gunshots fired into their vehicle. Two other passengers in the same vehicle survived. No arrests were made in the case for another two years. Then, on June 13, 2013, a friend of Hernandez's named Alexander Bradley 
filed a civil lawsuit seeking damages against him in federal court in Florida. Bradley stated that on February 13, 2013, Hernandez shot him in the head while the two were driving in a car on Florida's Interstate 95 following an incident at a Miami strip club where I believe there was a reference that Bradley had made about the double homicide in Boston, which infuriated Hernandez. After Hernandez shot him, he pushed him out of the vehicle and onto the shoulder of the highway, thinking that Alexander Bradley was dead. But he managed to survive, although he lost a right eye. At the time, Bradley refused to identify the person who shot him to police, and no arrests were made. Then finally, an incident occurred which would have investigators going back in time and taking a look at the double homicide, as well as the shooting of Alexander Bradley. On June 18, 2013, Police executed a search warrant at Aaron Hernandez's house in North Attleboro as they were investigating the shooting death of Odin Lloyd the night before. Odin was discovered dead in an industrial park about a mile from Hernandez's home with multiple gunshot wounds to his back and his chest. Two days after that search warrant was executed, the New England Patriots barred Hernandez from Gillette Stadium. Patriots owner Robert Kraft had the team staff ask Hernandez to leave because he did not want the media coverage coming on to stadium property. Mr. Kraft, along with team coach and general manager Bill Belichick, along with other members of the team management, decided to sever their relationship with Hernandez should this investigation result in his arrest citing his troubled history. On June 26th, Hernandez was arrested and charged with the murder of Odin Lloyd. And 90 minutes later, the Patriots released him from the team. On April 15, 2015, Aaron Hernandez was convicted of the first-degree murder of Odin Lloyd, along with some related gun charges. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In February of 2016, Hernandez reached a settlement agreement in the shooting of his friend, Alexander Bradley, but the details of that settlement are sealed. In the midst of his trial for the murder of Odin Lloyd, on May 15, 2014, Hernandez was indicted on murder charges for the killings of Daniel Abreu and Safiro Furtado, along with some related weapons charges and attempted murder charges for the passengers in the vehicle. He was also indicted on witness intimidation charges related to the shooting of his friend Alexander Bradley, and those charges would be included in the double murder trial. Already sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, this new trial began. March 1st, 2017. But a month and a half later, on April 14th, Hernandez was found not guilty on all charges except for the charge of an illegal possession of a handgun. In a nutshell, 
Hernandez managed to beat these charges because evidence was based mostly on the testimony of a known drug dealer and police mishandled evidence at the crime scene. And it probably didn't hurt that his attorney was the same attorney that managed to get Casey Anthony off of her murder charges. Jose Baez. So Hernandez shot and killed his friend Odin. But do we know why? Why would he kill his friend? I don't know if the true answer has ever been revealed. But it's been speculated that Hernandez thought that Odin was talking to some patrons at a Boston area nightclub that had in some way been associated with the victims of that 2012 double murder. And if you guys have ever heard or read about the timeline of Odin Lloyd's Last Night Alive, it is absolutely bone chilling. The two of them had been at the Rumor nightclub in Boston the evening of June 16, 2013. According to witnesses, it appeared that Hernandez became upset with Odin, presumably, as I stated, over some people that Odin was talking to that Hernandez thought may be connected to the 2012 murder victims. Hernandez would storm out of that nightclub and leave. That same evening, at approximately 9.30 p.m., Hernandez text messaged two of his friends, Ernest Wallace and Carlos Ortiz, asking them to drive up to North Attleboro, his place of residence. In the following early morning hours of June 17, 2013, at 2.33 a.m., Odin Lloyd is seen on surveillance video outside his residence, leaving his home in the south end of Boston and getting into a rented silver Nissan Altima. Inside that vehicle were Hernandez, Wallace, and Ortiz. You can see this footage online. And knowing how this story ends, it is very very eerie to watch. Between 3.07 a.m. and 3.23 a.m., Odin Lloyd sent his last text messages to his sister. They read, You saw who I'm with? Hello? NFL? And just so you know. Dreamers, this man knew that he was going to die. At 3.25 a.m., surveillance footage again captured images of a silver Nissan Altima headed towards a secluded gravel pit in an industrial area in North Attleboro. The vehicle disappears from the camera's view for four minutes until it is seen again driving back out the way it came. In that time, Odin was shot to death and left in that industrial yard. At 5.30 a.m., a jogger cutting through the yard discovered Odin's lifeless body. And one day later, a little more than half a year 
after signing his $40 million contract with the New England Patriots, after buying a home for himself and his fiancée, after welcoming the birth of his first child, Aaron Hernandez was identified as a suspect in his friend's murder. Hernandez was released from the New England Patriots. He forfeited his salaries for 2015 through 2018, a total of $19.3 million. All guarantees were null and void, and the rest of his 2013 and 2014 salaries, citing that his guarantees did not include being cut for conduct detrimental to the best interests of professional football. In Hernandez's case, that would be first-degree murder. The Patriots also withheld $3.25 million of his signing bonus, which he was due to be paid in 2014, but the bulk of it had already been paid. Hernandez technically had to be placed on waivers because he had not completed his fourth season in the NFL, and of course, he went unclaimed. After he cleared waivers, the NFL commissioner announced that the league would not approve any contract while the charges against him were pending. Just to make it official, but I don't think that any teams were eyeballing Hernandez at the time. But you never know, I guess. That same year, Panini America, a trading card and sports memorabilia company, removed all of their items with Hernandez's image on it and replaced him with Tim Tebow, who at the time was on the Patriots roster. And as far as the University of Florida is concerned, who Hernandez won a national championship with, ask them about alumni Aaron Hernandez and they'll tell you, Aaron who? Within a matter of hours of Hernandez's arrest, the pro shop at Patriot's Place removed all of his merchandise and memorabilia, as well as everything on its official website. Also, they exchanged approximately 2,500 Hernandez jerseys for different ones, and they destroyed anything that was unsold, taking a total loss of about a quarter of a million dollars. It was as if the man never existed. And as of April 19th, 2017, Aaron Hernandez existed no more. Five days after he was acquitted of the 2012 double homicide charges, Hernandez was found hanging by his bedsheets from his cell window at 3.05 a.m. He was pronounced dead at 4.07 a.m. The words John 3.16 were written on his forehead. And when a Bible in his cell was opened to John 3.16, Investigators found three notes, which said in part that he was entering a timeless realm and he would see his family in heaven. He covered the floor with shampoo, I guess to make it more difficult to save himself. And there was a drawing on the wall in blood of an unfinished pyramid and the all-seeing eye of God with the word Illuminati written in capital letters below the pyramid. 
and because of the way Massachusetts law is written, because Hernandez's conviction was under appeal at the time of his death, his attorney's motion to have his murder conviction vacated, citing the legal principle of abatement ab initio, meaning Hernandez technically died an innocent man, and this principle asserts that if a criminal defendant dies but has not exhausted all of his legal appeals, the case is reverted back to its start. The conviction is vacated and he is rendered innocent. On May 9, 2017, Aaron Hernandez was pronounced innocent of all charges. So dreamers, I know this was a long introduction, but these two stories have really stuck with me over the years. As I was telling you in the beginning, the senselessness of it all just baffles me. These two men had the world in the palms of their hands. And for whatever reason, whatever their logic, whatever was driving them to make the decision to commit these crimes, to end these lives, Ray Carruth, going after his girlfriend's life and his own child, and Aaron Hernandez taking the life of his good friend. This is what I'm talking about. These cases that are hard to make sense of because they had so much to lose. It's hard to comprehend. And the transgressions of both of these men Hernandez's having been so recent, and yet Ray Carruth's, even after all these years later, still have left scars on their respective communities. Communities that idolize these men for their contributions to their teams. It's something that I don't think fans in either North Carolina or in New England will ever get over. And this brings me to the third part of our story. The story of a promising future once again squandered. And it's a smaller story. But it's a story that really came to an end before it even had a chance to get started. In today's 48th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Lives Wasted. On September 2, 2006, Christina Henry, her boyfriend, Donovan Diaz, and two of her friends, Ebony White and Amber Mees, spent the evening out at the El Dorado Bowling Alley, an establishment located close to the Los Angeles International Airport. They decided to leave the bowling alley just a little bit past midnight. As they made their way across the parking lot, the night was cool. In the parking lot, there was a group of young men, maybe 20 or so, perhaps 25, staring at them as they made their way to their vehicle. They stared them down hard. 
Christina did spot an acquaintance of hers amongst them, a young man by the name of Ryan Betton, a friend of hers from middle school. They quickly exchanged pleasantries, and she continued on her way with her boyfriend and her friends as they continued on through the lot to get to their car. Two men separated from the group that had been loitering in the parking lot, the ones that had been staring at them. They quickly approached, one of them brandishing a weapon, a stainless steel handgun. He pointed it directly into Donovan's face as he said, What you got? What you got? Donovan told the young man holding the gun that he didn't have anything. And when he heard that, the gunman cocked his weapon and doubled down. Give me what you got, or I will kill you right now. Give me everything. Christina turned over her cell phone. Donovan gave up his wallet and an expensive diamond-cut Rolex gold chain. The two men casually walked away and headed towards that very acquaintance that Christina knew from middle school the one that she had just had that casual exchange with moments earlier, Ryan Betton. Christina, Donovan, Ebony, and Amber got into their vehicle, and that's when Ebony told the others that was Taekwon. She knew him. She knew who he was. She recognized him because they attended school together, Crenshaw High School. Ebony's boyfriend and Taekwon were football teammates. And this chance encounter at the El Dorado Bowling Alley parking lot that night would set off a chain reaction of events that would have a ripple effect, forever shifting the trajectory of all of their lives. Following the robbery, Christina went home to the apartment she shared with her mother. Pamela Lark. They resided in Mid-City, an area of Los Angeles situated west of downtown and a little bit south of West Hollywood. They lived there together alone. Pamela had already retired to bed for the evening by the time Christina arrived home, so she went to bed as well, opting not to disturb her mom with the news of what had happened to her, Donovan, and her friends earlier in the evening. When they got up, Christina told Pamela how they were robbed at gunpoint, and the two of them talked about what the best course of action would be. Christina made it very clear that she was absolutely terrified of what would happen to her if she were to report the crime to police. She just didn't want to get involved. Her cell phone wasn't worth essentially snitching to the cops. She wanted to forget about it. She tried to downplay the whole thing. It just wasn't worth it. Telling her mom, people get robbed all the time. But Pamela wasn't having it. And I completely understand I would not be okay with someone sticking a gun in the face of my child, even if it was only over a cell phone. 
I would not be so quick to let it go either. But Christina's mindset was different than that of her mom's. But we understand each of their thinkings in this. Christina doesn't want to stir up trouble. And Pamela doesn't feel like someone should be able to hold her child up at gunpoint and get to walk away without consequences. It's a tough predicament, no doubt. But Pamela had the final say. They were going to report this to the police. So that same morning of September 3rd, 2006, Pamela drove Christina and Donovan to the Los Angeles Police Department's Pacific Division to report the robbery. Christina was hesitant, somewhat defiant. But when detectives continued to question her, she finally told them that her friend Ebony was the one who recognized the gunman. She was only able to give police his first name, Taekwon, and that her friend knew him from Crenshaw High School, that he played on the football team with her friend's boyfriend, and that she wasn't sure if he was still a student there or not. A couple of days after the filing of the report, Christina and Ebony were asked to come back down to the station to look at a six-pack of photos. The two young women were separated into different rooms, and both of them, quickly, succinctly, and independent of one another, both chose photograph number five. That's him, each of them told the police. Later, Donovan and Amber would also confidently choose photograph number five as well. That's him. Taekwon Knox. Who is Taekwon Knox? Well, you already know that he attended Crenshaw High School and he played on their football team. But you see, Crenshaw has quite the stellar athletics program. If you were to look up some of their notable alumni, you will find a bevy of former students who went on to play professional sports. And not just football, but baseball and basketball as well. And Taekwon Knox was a standout. Definitely a rising star on both sides of the ball. As a wide receiver and a defensive back. Going into his senior year in the fall of 2005, Knox was ranked 13th in the state of California. And as for players across the Los Angeles area, he was elite, at the very top. He was already garnering the attention of college recruiters. He was definitely going to have his pick of schools, and he would certainly be getting a full ride. This kid had everything going for him. And you know he had his sights set on the NFL someday. He'd just have to put in a couple years of college ball, maybe all four if he wanted to finish out and graduate, and then he'd be set for life. And Knox, he had no shortage of confidence. On one forearm, he had tattooed the words, God's, and on the other, the word gift. Yep, 
His arms were God's gift, apparently. But like many other football players we've seen stories about in the media, Knox was gaining a reputation for some off-the-field troubles. School administrators and teachers, individuals who cared not to be identified out of fear for their personal safety, described Knox as an overtly hostile and belligerent student who frequently butted heads with school staff and other students. He was not an easygoing kind of guy. He openly challenged those who were in charge. And those who were in charge, as you can tell from their fears, were intimidated by the young man. So partway into his senior year, playing on the varsity football team, Knox found himself involved in an incident at the school's homecoming festivities in October of 2005. Outside the school's gymnasium, he got into an argument with a girl that he had previously dated. Based on eyewitness accounts of what occurred, Knox had turned to walk away from the argument, but the girl followed him, not wanting to end that fight. And as she did, Knox quickly turned around and punched her right in the face. And there it was, a flicker of what the future of a person like Taekwon Knox was going to look like. In recent years, we've seen instances like this, violence towards women perpetrated by professional athletes. And the consequences have often been too light. For example, you guys remember an incident back in 2014 involving then Baltimore's Raven running back Ray Rice? where he had punched his then-fiancé, now wife, in an elevator, knocking her out, and then dragging her out of the elevator. For that, he was suspended for two games, and all the criminal charges were dropped if he agreed to go to counseling. It wasn't until TMZ got a hold of the video footage from that elevator and played it for the world to see exactly what Ray Rice had done and then a proper punishment was levied against the running back. The Ravens suspended him indefinitely in September of 2014, and he has yet to ever play another down of football in the NFL. For Knox, being only in high school, the consequences were going to be severe, at least to a teenage rising football star. He was kicked off the team. To me, that seems like a light punishment. It seems like punching anyone in the face, especially when it's the first punch thrown, should be grounds for expulsion. He could have even faced some criminal charges as well, but no. He was only kicked off the football team. But that would also lead to other consequences the colleges. Remember, he was a college football prospect. He was being looked at by recruiters from across the country. But they weren't looking anymore. Once they saw the words, quote, off the field incident, unquote, in stories that ran in the local sports pages, their interest in Knox evaporated. 
If you were to ask Knox's attorney, he would deny, deny, deny that his client ever punched the girl in the face. But that's not how witnesses to the incident saw it. And Knox, he was pissed. He did everything that he could to deflect blame from himself. When he was interviewed for a college football website, he would say, quote, I feel like I'm getting screwed. People haven't seen the last of me. I've got a chip on my shoulder now. I'll make the schools who passed up on me realize what they missed. Talk about an overblown ego. This kid is like all the red flags all over the place. But anyway, he remained at Crenshaw High. He never played high school football again. And he graduated in the spring of 2006. Instead of packing his bags and heading off to play college ball in packed stadiums every Saturday, he ended up at East Los Angeles Community College, or ELAC for short, in the fall of 2006. And he made it onto their football team. And then the September 2nd robbery occurred. Again, barely into his first semester in community college, just making his way back onto the football field, this happened. And Christina, after filing her report with the LAPD, her anxiety was growing exponentially with each passing day. The detective assigned to her case, Thomas Vetriano, even made note of her concerns, writing down in his files that she was extremely fearful of retaliation. And you will come to find that she had very good reason to be extremely fearful. She was being made, forced essentially, by her mother to pursue pressing these charges. And she simply had no choice in the matter. Pamela Lark would not back down. And then the phone calls started. And the text messages. A few weeks following the robbery, Christina received a phone call from a number that she did not recognize. She answered it, and it was the mother of the man who had robbed her, Taekwon Knox's mother. Christina had never met the woman before, and she had no idea how his mom got her number. She put her phone on speaker so her mom could listen in on the conversation as well. Her message to Christina was very ominous. She told her that she did not want to harass her, that she had heard about what had happened, and she wanted to try and figure out why her son was being sought by police, but then followed that up with the assertion that it was not her son who committed this crime. There was no way that he was involved. But then she contradicted herself again, when she offered to pay for the items that Christina claims were stolen, asking her how much was it going to cost to make things go away. Pamela interjected, asking Knox's mother if she would be asking these same questions if her son had shot and killed her daughter. This would only be the beginning of an onslaught of harassing phone calls and text messages 
not only from Knox's mother, but also others who were apparently acquaintances of his, warning Christina that she'd better watch her back. A friend of hers, who was also associated with Knox, also warned her that it would be best if she not show up to court. Pamela was also receiving these harassing calls and text messages on her phone as well. So they turned to Christina's uncle, Pamela's brother-in-law, Michael Slider, Detective Michael Slider, for advice as to what to do. He was also an LAPD officer assigned to the Hollywood Division, and he was very, very concerned about the things his niece and her mother were telling him. He'd seen plenty of this kind of witness intimidation in his time, and it is never, ever a threat that he would take lightly, especially when it involves his family. He advised them that they needed to let the lead detective on their case know that they were being threatened via phone calls and text messages to keep their mouths shut and to watch their backs. Christina contacted Detective Vetriano and told him that she and her mother were being threatened, primarily by Knox's mother, but also by individuals associated with him. So the detective picked up the phone and called Knox's mother himself. He told her that the calls and text messages needed to cease immediately, that all contact by her or anyone else on behalf of her son would be considered witness intimidation and that they would be arrested and charged accordingly if they continued. Knox's mother apologized to the detective and told him that she would stop contacting Christina and Pamela. But that only lasted a week. She began calling Christina's mother again. Just like Pamela feverishly wanted to advocate for her child, so did Knox's mother. But she was conducting herself in a menacing, threatening manner. And not only did she call again, she also put her son on the phone to speak with Pamela directly. He, again, vehemently denied having anything to do with the armed robbery her daughter was accusing him of. But Pamela only had this to say to him. Sweetie, if you didn't do it, then you don't have anything to worry about because Christina would not lie on you. They informed Detective Vetrano again that Knox's mother was at it again, and he told her once again, he cautioned her that she was walking a thin line and that she was going to find herself charged with witness intimidation. And she, again, assured the detective that she would stop. But she explained that her son was a football player, and she did not want this incident, something that he did not do, to jeopardize his future college and professional prospects. On October 12, 2006, a criminal complaint was filed against Taekwon Knox charging him with two counts of robbery, five weeks after Christina and Donovan were held up at gunpoint in that bowling alley parking lot. Knox was arrested and charged accordingly. And on that same day that he was picked up, the middle school friend that Christina had encountered in that parking lot that night, Ryan Betton, 
the one that she had exchanged niceties with just before they were robbed. The same individual the gunman and his accomplice had gone back to talk to after the robbery. He began an instant messaging conversation with Christina. He started off by asking her what was going on with the police thing. He wanted to find out exactly what she was telling police. He also tried to tell Christina that it was not Knox who robbed her and Donovan that night. As a matter of fact, he offered up some alternative suspects. According to Benton, the individuals who robbed them were two others known as Shady Blue and Tiny Tony of the 40s. After a lengthy exchange of messages with Benton, Christina found herself even more worried for her safety. She wanted to report these messages to Detective Vetrano, but he was on vacation. And by the way, the 40s that Benton was referring to is the Rolling 40s Crips Street Gang. So with that information, feeling now that the crime has possible gang connections, this heightened Christina's fear even more. Knox quickly made his $210,000 bail and was subsequently released pending trial. Christina and Pamela grew increasingly concerned about Knox and his associates. Christina's uncle, Detective Slider, had previous experiences dealing with witnesses being intimidated by criminal defendants. He advised them to ask about the State Witness Assistance Program, a program in place to help individuals in situations just like theirs. They would be able to pay for things ranging from armed guard patrols to helping to pay for motel stays for trial witnesses. So they heeded his advice. Christina and Pamela visited Detective Atrano's supervisor along with another detective. They were fearful for their safety, especially now with this information about potential gang involvement. And the fact that Knox was free on bail scared them even more. They were afraid that Knox and anyone associated with him were well aware of where they resided. They felt like they had no choice but to move, but they needed help in doing so. And the supervising officer agreed to seek help. He called the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and requested approval for relocation funds for Christina and her mother. The next day, the DA's office cut a check and handed it over to the detective. But there was a catch. In order for them to be able to give them the money for the new apartment, they needed to provide police with the signed rental agreement for the new place. They had to provide proof that they indeed secured a new apartment. They couldn't have the money until then. And this wasn't as easy as it sounds. Not for Pamela and Christina. It was difficult for them to find a place that they could actually afford. And not only that, Pamela was the recipient of government housing assistance. And not all renters accepted tenants on the housing program. It was even difficult for them to have to pay the application fees for potential new places. Relatives and friends did what they could to help them with those fees. 
And in the meantime, while they struggled to find a new place, Christina and her mom were essentially drifters. They were not comfortable staying in their own apartment out of fear of retaliation. They stayed with friends, family members. They were pretty much couch surfing. The detective who was in charge of distributing the relocation funds to Pamela and Christina attempted to contact them on numerous occasions, and he said he left several messages about getting the money to them, but his calls went unanswered and unreturned. Their relocation money sat in his desk for two months. And then finally, towards the end of December of 2006, he had the check voided. Christina's uncle, Detective Slider, was very upset at the way his niece's case was being handled by the detectives assigned to it. He began feeling more and more that they just weren't taking the safety of his family seriously enough, especially when it came to helping them get into a new apartment. It was imperative that they find a new place to stay for their safety, and he didn't think they did enough for them. They could have done more. For example, contacting potential renters for them, on their behalf, advocating for them, as well as making sure that there was enough money for them to process the application fees, which can add up quickly, especially if you're turned down time and time again. It's money lost, and Christina's mom just did not have those resources. And on top of this, Detective Slider felt as though that they had enough evidence to have the district attorney levy the additional charges of witness intimidation against Taekwon Knox and have him rearrested. And with that, his bail could potentially be increased enough to keep him in jail while he awaits trial and thereby keeping Christina and her mom safe from, at the very least, his threats. To him, the detectives on the case could have done more. All they did was make some phone calls and that was it. They didn't help. They didn't do their jobs. And to him, it was all out of laziness. Detective Slider tried to keep his nose out of it. This wasn't his case. And I'm sure officers don't like other officers butting into their investigations, family or no family. But the more he was hearing from Christina and Pamela about the menacing phone calls and text messages, he just couldn't sit by idly and do nothing. He began logging into the centralized LAPD computer system, looking at the notes the detectives on the case were inputting. He made a point to regularly contact the lead detectives assigned to Christina's case. He wanted his presence to be known. He regularly told them, This is my family. I expect you to take care of this. Taekwon Knox, too, had been keeping busy throughout this time as well. Very busy. Frequenting the pawn shop. A month after Christina and Donovan were robbed, Knox pawned a diamond-cut gold Rolex chain three times. 
The first time he pawned it was on October 9th, 2006. But he ended up inexplicably picking it up the next day. Knox pawned the gold chain for a second time on November 14th, 2006 for the amount of $500. A month and a half later, on December 27th, Knox picked up the gold chain, paying $540 to retrieve the item. But a week later, on January 3rd, 2007, Knox pawned the item for a third time, again for $500. But this time, his mother attempted to retrieve the gold chain on March 10th, 2007, but the owner of the pawn shop refused to allow her to claim the item because it had a police hold on it. Unfortunately, the police dropped the ball again in this case by failing to obtain a picture of the gold chain so they could try and show it to Donovan to see if he could identify it as the item that was stolen from him. Such an important piece of evidence in this case that could have potentially tied Knox to the robbery and they didn't get a picture of it. For some unknown reason, the hold the police had placed on the item was lifted and whatever the pawn shop owner did with it from that point is unknown. It was gone forever. In the meantime, Christina received her subpoena to appear in court for the preliminary hearing in the robbery case against Knox. She was scared. She repeatedly told Detective Vitriano and her mother that she did not want to take the stand. She called the detective telling him of her fears and it would be during this phone call that he said that he was confident kids never follow through on their threats and in that same conversation he also reminded her that if she did not take the stand she would be the one going to jail Pamela remained adamant as well she did not like the idea of her daughter being put at risk it could not have been easy to see and feel the fear your child experiences. But her conviction that Christina needed to take the stand outweighed all of that. Her mother told her, if Taekwon Knox was willing to stick a gun in your face and he was allowed to get away with it, next time, he's going to kill somebody. Little did anyone know how prophetic those words would be. The first preliminary hearing was scheduled for the month of December 2006, and Christina was afraid to go. It's so sad to read over and over again in this story this poor girl's fears of going through with this. But her mother stood firm. She was going. Pamela drove her daughter and her boyfriend Donovan to the preliminary hearing. When they arrived at the courthouse, Christina saw Taekwon Knox. She also saw his girlfriend, a young woman by the name of Kiara Dashiell. It was clear to Knox and now his girlfriend that Christina was not going to be deterred from testifying. Their threatening phone calls and messages were not being heeded. Nothing happened at the preliminary hearing. The matter was continued 
to January 8, 2007. It was not too long after the canceled hearing that Christina had an encounter with Knox's girlfriend, Kiara Dashiell. Christina worked at a local coffee house, and one day, Dashiell showed up at her place of employment. She ordered a coffee, sat down, and just stared at Christina. Just stared. As Christina put it, it was as if she was the only person in the place. Christina took this stare down very, very seriously. She took it as a threat. She went to Detective Vatriano about this ominous incident with Dashiell, and she tried to tell him that she has decided that she cannot and would not show up to court. He reminded her again that if she didn't go, she would be going to jail. She was subpoenaed. She had to go. And Pamela, she stood by the detective, echoing his words. She must show up to court. End of discussion. Six days before the preliminary hearing, Donovan received a threatening phone call that caused him to become fearful for his safety as well. A friend from school told him that he needed to watch his back because of the court date that was coming up. And as for Christina and Pamela, they got to the point where they could no longer live alone. Since the robbery, they had barely been to their own apartment. The fear was intensifying. They decided they just couldn't keep running, but they desperately wanted someone to come stay with them. So Pamela's son, Christina's older brother, and his two children came to stay with them at their apartment beginning January 3, 2007. The preliminary hearing was only days away at that point. Pamela had come to the conclusion that she could not leave her daughter alone. She could not allow her to go anywhere by herself. Christina was taking nursing classes at Santa Monica Community College, and she insisted that her son give her a ride to the college the morning of January 4, 2007. Her classes were set to begin at 7 a.m. When they left the apartment complex that morning, Christina did not take notice of anyone or anything that appeared to be out of the ordinary or out of place. Christina would be picked up later on that morning when class was over by her mother. And sometime before 10 a.m., the morning of the 4th, Pamela gathered up her two grandchildren, along with her 17-year-old niece, Deshane Lane, and walked out of her apartment, headed to her car so she could go pick Christina up. She made her way out back to the small parking lot where her car was located adjacent to their building. She had a bag of trash with her, and she tossed that into the dumpster. She turned around to head back towards the direction of her grandchildren, who were not far from where she threw the trash into the bin. Pamela noticed that her grandson had dropped his toy onto the ground. She bent down to pick it up. And in that moment, when she was bent down, 
an African-American man dressed in black with a black hoodie over his head and a bandana disguising his face approached Pamela from behind. As she turned around to face this man, he pulled a gun out and pointed it directly at her face. He demanded that she hand over her purse, saying, The purse, lady. She replied, Please, sir, there's nothing in it. The gunman made his demand a second time. Pamela put her hand up, holding her hand there. Maybe to resist the attack. Maybe to shield herself from the weapon. Perhaps it was her reaction to the sudden shock of having a gun pointed at her. But as soon as her hand went up, just as she was about to tell him that she had nothing, the gunman unloaded his weapon into Pamela. A total of five bullets tore into her. The gunman ran off as Pamela fell lifelessly to the ground, blood pouring down the side of her face. In one hand, the toy she'd retrieved for her grandson, as well as her purse, and bullet holes through the other hand where she tried to stop those bullets from hitting her. Pamela Lark was gone, shot to death right in front of her grandchildren four days before Christina was set to testify against Taekwon Knox. Christina's uncle, Detective Slider, was at home when his phone rang. It was his niece telling him that someone shot Grandma. He had just spent the night before with them. He knew. He panicked, and he knew. He got into his car and listened to the radio transmissions. And from the things that he was hearing, he knew this was bad. By the time he got to Pamela's and Christina's apartment, Pamela had already been rushed to the hospital and pronounced dead. He approached the lieutenant in charge at the scene of the shooting and said, I know who did this. His name is Taekwon Knox. Pamela's niece, an eyewitness to this killing, did not see where the gunman came from. She was the one who was able to provide the description of him and what happened at the scene. Even though she could only see his eyes, she knew she would be able to recognize him. He was about six feet tall and had a slender build. But she wasn't the only witness. Police canvassed the area and found several of them. A gentleman by the name of Mario Villalobos was at home that morning in this ground floor apartment adjacent to the one that Pamela and Christina lived in. When he heard gunshots ring out, he peered out his doorway. He saw a man wearing a black sweater with his hands tucked into his pockets. He saw him running towards the front yard and he jumped a fence and headed towards the direction of Washington Boulevard. He said he couldn't exactly be sure of his build, but he appeared to be taller than 5 foot 8 inches tall, and he also described the man as having a slender build. 
Mr. Villalobos was unable to get a good look at the man's face because he had his hoodie pulled over his forehead. But he was able to see that he was African American based on his skin complexion. But he described him as having a light skin tone. Not long after Mr. Villalobos' sighting, another witness named Jack A. Smith was at the corner of Carmona Street and Washington Boulevard when she spotted a suspicious vehicle parked on the wrong side of the street, which I assume means that the car was parked along the curb, facing the wrong direction for the side that it was parked on. So this stood out to her. What also stood out to Miss Smith is the vehicle, a Chevy Impala, still had its dealership paper plates in place of where the license plates should be mounted, and that indicated that the car was purchased or leased from Finance Auto. She saw sitting in the driver's seat a young, slender, African-American woman with her hair in braids, and she had a scarf on. Miss Smith would later identify this woman as being Kiara Dashiell, Knox's girlfriend. After Miss Smith dropped her children off at school, she was headed back to her car, where she had parked on Washington Boulevard, and she saw what she would describe as someone looking like a ninja, dressed all in black, with only his eyes visible, his face obscured by a bandana. This person would pass by her so closely, he would have only been arm lengths away from where she stood. He had gloves on, but he was not holding anything in his hands. Then she saw Dashiell drive in the direction of Washington Boulevard, and to her, it looked as though the person dressed in black that ran past her may have gotten into that vehicle, but she could not say with any degree of certainty that she saw him get in. She too said that he looked to be at least five foot eight inches tall, also with a slender build, but he wasn't overly skinny. She couldn't recall for certain if the person she saw running was African American, but when she was questioned at the scene, she seemed fairly certain that he was. Another witness, a gentleman by the name of Jamie Melgar, was seated in his car on Marvin Avenue, which is the street Christina and Pamela's apartment was located. And at approximately 9.30 a.m., he too heard gunfire. He then witnessed a person dressed all in black coming from the building in the direction from where he had heard the shots come from. He too saw this person jump the fence and described him as being approximately six feet tall and skinny. Surveillance cameras installed in a bakery near Pamela's and Christina's apartment captured the images of a person dressed in dark clothing running on Marvin Avenue at 9.50 a.m., the very first calls to 911 related to the shooting of Pamela Lark came into dispatch at 9.55 a.m. And here comes Taekwon Knox's attempt at creating an alibi. One of his counselors at Crenshaw High School, a woman named Michelin Jones, had contacted Knox that morning to take him up on an offer he had made to help her move some heavy items at her home. Knox returned her phone call the morning of the shooting at 9.57 a.m. By 10.22 a.m., Dashiell was seen on surveillance at a nearby McDonald's. 
and when she left, she returned to the vehicle belonging to Knox, that Chevy Impala. Mickalyn Jones picked up Knox near the intersection of 96th and Normandy at approximately noon, the same day of Pamela's murder. She was captured on surveillance footage, picking him up, and when she did, he was with the same Chevy Impala. Cell phone tower evidence was used to show that Knox was in the vicinity of Pamela and Christina's apartment during the time Pamela was murdered. The phone call he made to Mickalyn Jones pinged a tower on Jefferson Boulevard, just a few miles from where the murder took place. Based on the vehicle and the dealership plates on the Chevy Impala, they were able to trace the car to a dealership in nearby Hawthorne, California. There had been several people who had recently purchased an Impala from them, and lo and behold, one of them was Taekwon Knox. They surveilled him at his South Los Angeles home, and he was placed under arrest late in the afternoon when he arrived there with a friend. Not too far away, police arrested Kiara Dashiell as she was getting ready to drive away in that very same Impala they had been seen in throughout the day. While being interrogated, Dashiell started in on a long string of lies about her activities the morning of the shooting. But detectives pressed her. They told her that they knew Knox was the person who killed Pamela Lark, and she was the one covering for him. She soon came to realize that Knox was actually sitting in an adjacent interrogation room, so she started shouting through the wall that she loved him and that she wasn't saying anything to the police and that they were trying to set him up, that she doesn't know what they're talking about, and to not let them lie to him. His response to her back through the wall? Girl, chill out. Detectives eventually asked Dashiell's parents to come down to the station and try to talk some sense into their daughter. They broke it down for them. She was caught up in a murder that her boyfriend is a suspect in, and she had already put herself in the getaway car, and she was not rolling over on Knox. Telling her mom and dad that she's not going to be the first woman that's going to be serving life in prison for driving the getaway car. That's what happens when love gets in the way of smart decisions. When Dashiell's parents came into the room, she told them that she didn't do anything. Her mom cried. And her dad, he spoke to his daughter, telling her, I told you to stay away from Taekwon, but you didn't want to listen. Now look at your situation. We are looking at writing to you in prison for the rest of your life or until they stick a needle in your arm and kill you. Because these people, they're talking about giving you the death penalty. You need to tell these people the truth. These police are not playing. And it worked. She hugged her mom, and her father assured her that they were going to do what they could to get her out of this. And she pretty much fessed up to everything. She told them that Knox was in the car with her that he picked her up, and when he instructed her to sit in the driver's seat, she did. Both she and Knox knew that the robbery charge that he was facing would ruin his chances of ever getting a football scholarship, 
and she desperately wanted to be the girlfriend of a football player, especially an NFL player. She admitted that Knox had asked her to go to the coffee house where Christina was employed and to look at her, look at her long and hard, and to remember what she looked like so he would get the right person. Dashiell was offered a deal in exchange for her testimony against Knox, a deal which she accepted. On July 9, 2007, Knox was charged with the robberies of Christina and Donovan with the special circumstance of using a gun. He was also charged with the first-degree murder of Pamela Lark, Christina's mom, with the special circumstances of lying in wait and murder while in the commission of a robbery, also with the special circumstance of using a gun, as well as the attempted robbery of Pamela, and he was also charged with attempting to dissuade a witness. Dreamers, this guy would go on to be tried three times. On November 17, 2009, the first jury found Knox guilty of the charge of attempting to dissuade or intimidate a witness. They deadlocked on the rest of the counts and a mistrial was declared. And then again on September 8, 2010, a second jury deadlocked on the same counts and another mistrial was declared. Finally, on July 18, 2011, a third jury found Taekwon Knox guilty of the two counts of robbery involving Christina and Donovan, along with the added charge of using a gun. He was also found guilty of the first-degree murder of Christina's mom, along with the special circumstance of lying in wait and using a gun, and they also found him guilty of the attempted second-degree robbery, again with the special circumstance of using a gun. On November 8, 2011, Taekwon Knox was sentenced to all the charges added up together, a total of life without the possibility of parole, plus 21 years and four months, plus 25 years to life. All of that, dreamers. This kid was so young when he killed Pamela Lark, only 19 years old. If he were to live out his life expectancy in prison, he'd have to spend a good 50 or 60, maybe even more years behind bars. Today, he'd be only about 30 years old, rotting away in prison, all over a phone and a gold chain. God's gift, right? Those schools will be sorry, right? Got that chip on your shoulder still? I bet that chip feels like the weight of the world. And there is more to this story. You see, in Knox's first two trials, the prosecution relied heavily on the testimony of none other than girlfriend Kiara Dashiell, the one who drove Knox away from the scene that day. She, just like her boyfriend, had a very bright and promising future. She was a top student at Crenshaw High School, even earning herself a full ride to the University of California at San Diego. But she flushed all that down the toilet 
when she agreed to be a party to the murder of Pamela Lark. The Los Angeles County District Attorney did offer Kiara Dashiell a deal. In exchange for her testimony against her boyfriend, she would be given a seven-year sentence. But when she was on the stand, she was reluctant, often hostile and combative, and largely unimpressive as a witness, and she perjured herself. In other words, she screwed herself out of a pretty sweet deal. Maybe she didn't know this or understand the implications of the crime that she was involved in. But if you are in any way involved in a murder, whether you just drove there or stood by as a lookout, whatever you did, if someone gets killed, it doesn't matter if you pulled the trigger or not. You have the potential of being charged as if you had. And that's exactly what happened to Kiara Dashiell. The prosecution was sick and tired of her nonsense. She was doing their case more harm than good. So they withdrew their deal for seven years in exchange for testimony. They took Knox to trial for a third time and nailed it without her. And on top of that, she was going to be charged right along with him for the first-degree murder of Pamela Lark. After years and years of telling lie after lie, Kiara Dashiell, just like Knox before her, sat in a Los Angeles courtroom. And just like him, with nothing left but a quickly fading memory of a future full of promise, another life squandered for literally nothing, in April of 2013, she finally made the best decision she could have made for herself and her family and pleaded guilty to the second-degree murder of Pamela Lark. She admitted to the courtroom full of Pamela's family, as well as her own, that she was aware that Taekwon Knox had armed himself with a loaded gun and that he had planned to kill Christina. She said they went to the apartment complex where Christina and Pamela lived before dawn that day. And the plan was to kill her, not her mom. They did not realize or they did not see that Christina had left the apartment earlier that morning with her older brother as he took her to that nursing class. Knox ended up murdering her mother instead, but she did not know why he had decided to do that. She admitted to waiting for him in his car parked on Washington Avenue. And she admitted to driving him away from the scene. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 19 years. So it will be in the year 2032 before she might have a chance at freedom. The judge openly admonished her in the courtroom, telling her, You've made horrific decisions and caused incredible pain and suffering to others. You are entitled to no pity. After Dashiell was led away, her family offered their apologies and embraced Christina, telling her how sorry they were. 
And towards the back of the courtroom, sitting alone and quietly, was Michael Slider, Christina's uncle. He had been fired in 2010 from his position as detective for what he had done by logging into the LAPD's computer system, finding out information about the case involving Knox and his niece, and passing his findings on to the attorneys hired to represent his family in all this mess. The family had filed a negligence lawsuit against the LAPD, negligence that resulted in Pamela's death. Slider was leaking information to the family attorneys, and that caused an internal investigation in which he was found guilty of misconduct. But they offered him a deal. They wanted the family to drop the lawsuit, and they would impose only a five-day suspension. But he turned it down. So he was fired. And the lawsuit against the LAPD was eventually tossed out, citing that the detectives on the case acted appropriately and that they did not have any obligation to Pamela Lark's well-being because she was not the witness in the case. Christina was. An appeals court tossed out one of the LAPD's accusations against Michael Slider, and his case was sent back to the department for a reevaluation of his termination. Eventually, they decided to not pursue his termination and reinstated him in his position with the LAPD. And that brings this 48th episode of California Dreaming to a close. It's just one of those stories that leaves you feeling kind of empty in the end. At least it does for me. All three of these stories of bright, promising futures cut short because of arrogance, short-sightedness, and the belief that because these three athletes were born with the gift of athleticism, that they somehow exist on a plane greater than everyone else. That they were in some kind of position to decide who gets to live and who doesn't. It's pathetic when you step back and look at how their stories ended, when it could have played out so much differently. Please join California Dreaming on Facebook. You will find our official page and the discussion page. Request to join and leave your comments and feedback on this and all of our stories. You can also find California Dreaming on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And if you would like to help support the show, you can do that in a couple of ways. You can find California Dreaming on Patreon, where for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to the bonus content on there. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at yahoo.com. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, if you would be so kind as to leave a rating and review of the show there, that too would be greatly appreciated. California Dreaming is proudly presented to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can find me, along with some other amazing shows, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, Historium, 4-1 Owned, Vox Arcana, and The Podience. 
There are so many new and fun and exciting things happening over there at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Check out our blog and our merchandise store. Once again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for joining me for this episode. I wish all of you, my fellow Americans, a fun Memorial Day weekend. And a special thank you to all of you who have proudly served and sacrificed for our nation. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>